Before we get started, I wanted to let you know about our monthly membership called the High Risers Club. Building upon the foundation of our program, Commercial Real Estate for Residential Realtors, the High Risers Club is designed to help members gain a more expansive knowledge of and confidence around the most important aspects of commercial real estate. Each month, we'll take a deep dive into one specific commercial real estate topic, and you can join me and my team live every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time to learn and answer your questions. To sign up, click the link in the show notes or go to coachjeffwright.com slash the High Risers Club. Hi, this is Coach Jeff Wright. And in my podcast, Commercial Real Estate for Residential Realtors, we will take a deep dive with industry experts into different aspects of commercial real estate. My ultimate goal is to give you the knowledge, confidence, and belief that you can transact commercial real estate at a high level, just like you do with residential real estate. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Commercial Real Estate for Residential Realtors. And we have as our guest this week for the second time on our show, Elisa Gaines. Welcome, Elisa. Thank you for having me. Oh, great to have you. So in today's episode, we've been working in the High Risers Club for those learning commercial real estate. We've been working through our buyer roadmap, our buyer journey. And part of that buyer journey is talking about financing. So I thought I would ask you to come on and talk some about financing, but I wanted to start first with our audience for them to understand exactly what you do. I know you're a commercial real estate mortgage broker, but can you explain to our audience what is a mortgage broker versus a lender versus any of the other options? Sure. So a mortgage broker, it's my job. I'm independent. I have my own firm. And it's my job to find the right loan for the right situation. I don't have an allegiance to one bank or another. I have to figure out which lender is appropriate for the situation. So part of my value is knowing all the lenders in my market and beyond and what their programs are. So I can always be nimble. Okay. So I'm just going to dive into that a little bit. So when you say know the lenders, let's just say that you're going to finance a multi-unit building. Okay. So let's say somebody brings you a deal and it's got six units or eight units or 10 units. So how many lenders will you talk to in the process? Like how will you just go through as soon as someone's hired you, what happens next? So first, as we've always been talking about, I look at the income and expenses of the property, make sure that the cash flow is sufficient to pay for the mortgage. I will talk to three, four, five lenders because programs change all the time, especially these days. So I'll speak to several lenders, just get an update where they may be because it could have changed from last week or two weeks ago, and then start to put together our financing packages. Yeah. And so one of the things, again, I want our audience to understand is not all banks have an appetite for all products. And one of the things that you do is you keep abreast of who has 
product types that you might be trying to finance for something. I used a multi. That's one that most people have some kind of program for. But there are lots of other things that you do with financing that there are some banks that do a better job. So, if, you know, if you want to just talk about multifamily for a minute, yes, the, there is a variety of programs. Some banks will have a higher loan to value, so they'll offer a higher loan amount on a property. Amortization will be different among lenders, 20, 25, 30 years. In this environment, some banks that I'm noticing are getting more conservative on um, cash flow requirements for a property and debt service coverage which we can talk about a little bit further. Okay. So a couple more things just for audience to understand. So in the residential space, when someone goes to get a loan, most of the time they're going to a loan officer. Well, that's not true. I mean, there are residential mortgage lenders that do shop in their own portfolio. They're similar to you on the residential side, and they'll go shop and they'll have access to multiple banks. So that for our audience to understand, our residential folks to understand, there is a similarity on the residential side, uh, but we'll dive into the, some of the differences there. The one thing I just want to, who pays you? So who pays you? Because on the residential side, it's really being paid by that lender, whoever they're getting the loan through, who pays you? So the borrower pays us because we don't get paid by the banks or the lenders. So we get paid by the borrower. Okay. So that is a conversation I have early on in the process. Okay. And, and what I say to folks to understand, because we've worked together for so long, is that the advantage, even though the borrower's paying for your services, they're not only getting you, they're getting you to shop, to try to find best rate, best terms for them overall, but you're also helping them package so that that loan, when you go somewhere, that has the best chance to get approved and be able to be done. So I just want everyone to understand that even though you say someone's paying you, there's a reason for it, there's a value that you provide. So often people don't know how to package themselves and we know what to put we know the level of detail that we have to put into our work gets our loan request to the top of the pile versus the bottom of the pile. And we've had it happen where people have tried to do it themselves. Then we come in and we can get it done for them just because we know. Yeah, but when you say for clarity, when you say they've tried to do it, because I know a couple instances we've worked together, they've tried to do it and failed. Failed. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Failed. Failed. They failed. failed. Yeah, they, yeah. they failed, mm -hmm. but in, then when you were hired, when they failed and they were trying to find a way to get this done, and I specifically brought you someone, you looked at what they did and repackaged what was required because I often refer to you for our audience to understand this, is you're like, when you submit it, it's like the underwriter, you, I'm calling you an underwriter, submitting it to the underwriter, meaning that you're submitting something that you believe can get approved. You're not just randomly sending something out. So again, just a very valuable service for clients that you represent. Last question about it before we move on is where can you do business? I know you're headquartered in Connecticut. Where else can Nationally. you? Nationally. Okay. Nationally. I can work anywhere. 
not going to work anywhere. I just uh, actually this morning got a call for, you know, four states away. As you know, I did one very recently in Ohio. I did Texas. I did Florida. Okay. Just I want an yeah. audience to understand that yeah. somebody you can help. Okay. So next thing I want to do is I want to talk about the commercial real estate world versus the residential world with financing. And you mentioned it quickly, but I just want to start in sequence. So how are commercial loans underwritten? I want the audience to make sure that they walk away understanding this today. So just give us a snapshot of what is a commercial loan? What is the process? What is the underwriting based on for a commercial loan? So in one sentence, it's the income and expenses of the property. That's first and foremost. And somebody's earnings from a job or other sources is second. Okay. So income and expense. So really it means really the cash flow. The cash flow of the, the property. The cash flow that's yeah. there. And we know, again, for residential folks, what they're used to is comparative properties. We call it a CMA, where they're comparing sold properties to determine value and Literally, from an underwriting, it's not income and expense. It's underwriting comparing this property to the other properties and then underwriting that individual for their own financial capability to, to be able to pay for that loan. Let's go on to another difference. Let's talk about just down payments in the commercial world versus the residential world. Down payments are larger. So they are typically 25% down. Sometimes with certain property types, it would be 30% down, but 25 is sort of the rule of thumb. Okay, so 25% down. So if somebody's looking at a million dollar property, they have $250,000. Just for the down payment. Plus just... closing, plus the third party reports, plus the closing costs, plus reserves. No bank wants to see that a person has wiped out their resources to buy the property. So they have to have reserves after the closing. So after the down payment, let's talk about another major difference. Let's talk about the term of the loan for commercial, I mean, residential. We know that somebody's typically getting typically a 30 year loan with a 30 year amortization. Let's talk about term alone for commercial. Shorter term loan terms are typically five, seven, and 10 years. Sometimes for owner-occupied property, we can get a 25-year term and it would be self-amortizing. So it would be a 25-year loan with the amortization based on 25 years, but typically a loan is gonna be five, seven, or 10 years. Yeah, and, and for our audience, I wanna just talk about a second because I probably, as I explain and teach to somebody, I probably hardly ever even bring up that there's a 25-year option. It's because... not often. It's not often, but there is, for owner-occupied, there is that possibility. And typically in a 25-year loan, that would be a rate reset every five or 10 years. And I'm thinking of an example. We know where the rate would reset every five years. It's a longer-term loan, but the rate resets okay. every five years. Okay, so let's... Let's dive deeper on that because that's the part that I really want to make sure everyone understands is that, again, very different than residential because we're locked in with residential unless 
someone's doing an adjustable rate mortgage. If they're doing an adjustable rate mortgage, then it's if somebody says I'm doing a 10 in one, it resets at 10 years. If they're doing a seven one, it resets at seven. But what you were just describing, so what happens at that five year mark? So if it's a five year loan, balloon balloons in five years. Okay. And then the person has to refinance. Okay. Typically we would recommend a 10 year loan because five years goes awfully quick. But it does balloon, so that's very, very different than a residential loan. And so when it balloons, their options are refinance, if they can, or if they can't refinance, they have to sell. sell. No other choice. I want to go back to your example of the 25-year loan with a five-year reset. So what is happening on that five year, what what happens with the payment? I mean, how does someone know what the payment will be? So the formula for the payment is set up front in the loan documents. So it would be based on an index, the treasuries, the federal home loan bank. And so that plus a spread, and that will be laid out in the commitment letter so that when it's time to re reset the rate and every five years, that formula is there. It's whatever the index is at that time. Okay. So it's not renegotiated, it's, it's set. Yeah, and, and I know from real life experience, I know that I've had loans that reset on that five year mark and sometimes we get good news if interest rates have gone down and our loan payment resets or if you hold it long enough and rates go up, yeah. then those payments are gonna go the up. Payments go up. All right, so let's talk about, you made reference earlier on, said we're going to talk about it. Again, from a financing standpoint, the difference between residential and commercial in terms of third-party cost, closing costs. Talk about the difference between both. First, it's more expensive. That's the first thing. There is an appraisal to, that is required, and that can be anywhere from... 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 or higher, depending upon the property type, the complexity of the property. There will be environmental work to be done. At a minimum, we start with a phase one report, which is a search of the databases to see if anything pops up. Phase one, 1,500, 2,000. If that leads to a phase two, 10,000 or more. And some lenders require a property inspection report. So that will be a couple thousand dollars, something like that. And they will hire an architect or an engineer to walk the property and make sure that everything and all the systems are in good condition. Yeah. So you mentioned that you have an appraisal. We know that residential has an appraisal also, same thing. But the commercial appraisal is significantly more expensive. So I'm gonna talk about that we did a deal together. The commercial appraisal for a building that was 38,000 square feet was $6,500. So for people that have perspective, 6,500. The environmental was $1,500 to be able to check the environmental that was there. Um, and then they require, you said in, uh, it could be an architect, they require this lender 
to have an architectural firm come in and do an inspection of the property. Mm -hmm. And I remember that was $2,000. So in that scenario, where residentially, that appraisal might have been, let's call it an appraisal, maybe it's $400, maybe it's $500. They're not going to have the environmental and they're going to have a building inspection. Maybe that building inspection's 600, 800, whatever it might be. But a very big difference. Big difference. Very big. And people who are new to it get sticker shock. Totally. You know. Totally. Well, part of the reason why I think that our great residential agents and our great commercial agents, I think it's the same thing that we've got to do. And that's in that first meeting, we've really got to educate them about the process so that before they even go into this, they have an awareness of what's there. When it's really sticker shock is when someone hasn't educated them. Now they've gotten a deal together. It's time to do the inspections or it's time to get the appraisal done. And that's when it's really a challenge. And, One, and people, excuse me for interrupting, sure. but the borrowers have to provide the check before the reports are ordered. So it is, it's imperative to educate them because once we get a term sheet and we accept that term sheet, the borrower has to put up real money. Yeah, and let's talk about real money. So the deal that I just referenced, that check was $10,000 yes. that somebody had a yeah. right at the time of the commitment. And that's $10,000 going. I mean, it's gone. That's for the appraisal, environmental, and inspection. And that's why we spend so much time. I feel such a sense of responsibility to go through everything on a deal because I know somebody's putting up $10,000 or, or more or about that. And that's that's gone. Right, right. So I, I want to talk about one more thing tied to underwriting that's totally, totally different in the residential space. And that is the debt service coverage ratio. And I just want people just to understand what it is for, what it means, and just the simple formula, because it really, I don't want people to be intimidated because anybody can calculate it, but I just want don't, we don't have it in residential. So right. what is that debt service coverage ratio? So it's a ratio where the numerator is the net operating income of the property divided by the annual mortgage payment, the P&I. And lenders want to know that that ratio is at least 1.25 to 1 for the most part. So it's 1.25, sometimes 1.3, once in a while 1.2. But where at? So the NOI is the cash flow of the property. It's the income less the expenses gives us the net operating income. Before the mortgage. It's Before, it's just the property. Just the property. So it's the rental income, right? operating expenses to run the property. Okay. Take that number, divide it by the mortgage payment. And so lenders want to know there's a cushion to cover for eventualities. Tenants don't pay, tenant leaves. Heat bill is really high. Electric bill is high. Heating Stuff happens. Heating and air conditioning units have to be yeah, replaced, like we had in our deal. So I, I had this this conversation a couple nights ago with a young man who's from out of state buying a property in New York. He's buying a three three family investment, and he said, "I want a fifteen year amortization," and he earns good money, and so he can afford this. And I said. You need to do this differently. There is no cushion based on the cash flow that this property produces. There's no cushion. You need to 
he wanted a 15 year amortization because I was calculating a debt service coverage for him. And I said, we need to do, do a loan that has a 30 year amortization because at a 15 year amortization, you're going to go out of pocket every month. And that's not the, that's not the idea of real estate investment. Well, and for our audience, just to understand for people who aren't as familiar is that the lower the term repayment, 15 years is a bigger payment than a 20 year loan. 20 year loan is a bigger payment than a 25 year amortization. The 25 is bigger than the 30. So you were saying you want to make sure that payment is something that is handled by the, by the property. Flow. I said to him, you shouldn't have to come out of pocket X thousands a month to support this because you want a, a lower amortization. So I want to restate for the audience and make sure I get this right. So the debt service coverage ratio, we're taking the property net operating income and we're dividing it by the annual mortgage payment property. P&I, the mortgage payment. We're not including the taxes because the taxes have already been contemplated. So and that ratio needs to be typically 1.25 or higher. And that 0.25, that cushion is for repairs, for someone not paying, someone who could be a tenant not paying, some property becoming vacant. It's a cushion the lender wants to know that there is some cash flow available if they run into something that is not the way it was initially occupied or underwritten. Underwritten. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Because I, in the residential space, we don't have that. We don't have the debt service coverage ratio to deal with. So it's it's something that our audience can want them to understand. And once they do get it, you'll get it because it's the same way. Okay, next thing I want to do is I want to just talk about a scenario with a borrower in commercial real estate. How is a borrower assessed? How is a borrower looked at? What are the things that are important to a lender? If you can just take us through that for commercial financing. So credit score is important. Similar to residential. Similar to residential. Okay experience this is different experience in commercial real estate or com experience in owning investment property have they done it before it's okay if they haven't but do they have a plan to manage the property are they buying something that's 500 miles away who's going to be managing that we really have to dig into that what's the management going to be do they have reserves to be available, have reserves for some of these eventualities that may happen. So and all you keep saying eventualities, but qualify what eventuality is. The heating and the HVAC system has to get so replaced. So you're saying that in case there's someone doesn't pay you, something goes vacant yeah. or repairs have to be done. And, you know, yeah. we've done this long enough that stuff happens. Yeah. It just does. Yeah. And so the roof has to be repaired. The gutters fall off you know, flood somewhere, water damage. These are thousands and thousands of dollars. Okay. So when you go into this, all of that needs to be thought through. Is the person prepared to do that? Do they have the wherewithal to do it? And so question for you, if a property someone runs across and it has a terrific cash flow, terrific income and expense, 
and let's just say somebody's credit, personal credit isn't so great, or let's say their experience, this is the first time they've run across something, but the property, the income and expense is really strong, really strong. How does a lender look at that? So these can get done, 100%, they can get done. If it's a, for a person's first time, for sure that can get done as long as, you know, it's close to where they live. It's not a big stretch for them that they have some reserves. Credit issues can be done as well, but that may mean going to an alternate lender because credit issues is a different animal. Okay. You know, did a person not pay their previous mortgage? You know, did they not pay their bills? So the point, I'm going to restate it okay. because I'm just doing this from experience with you. If I bring you something and the building really cash flows, it's a good building, it's good property, somebody has run across a great opportunity, and I brought it to you, what you would typically say to me in our experience, we'll find a way to I get it. I was just going to say, we'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll figure it out. We will. And where residentially, sometimes there isn't a way to figure something out in a conventional marketplace. If somebody's credit is a challenge, somebody has had a foreclosure, bankruptcy. And I'm not saying commercially it's different. I just know that the property really will ultimately, if there's really great cash flow and it's a great asset, I know as you go about shopping that you find options for our clients. That's what I'm... And I mean, we had fairly recently somebody I've worked with for years and his credit score was low in this particular transaction. Why? He had run up a lot of credit card debt buying a fix and flip. He hadn't paid off the credit cards. It was too low for this lender. They weren't going to approve it. You know, I referred him to a credit repair company to help him quickly get it taken care of. Right. Okay. In that but case, the property cash flow was great. It was beautiful property. Okay. So in that case, cash in today's flow. world, then I'm not really what I'm driving at. I thought the answer you were going to give me was a little bit different. So the, even if the cash flow is really strong, it's not always a guarantee that you can get it's it. It's not done. a guarantee. Okay. No. That's fine. No. But if the cash flow is strong, we can usually try to overcome some of the obstacles. Yes, understand. I, I've just worked with you long enough to know that sometimes when you do some magical stuff. So, so it's great. Okay, let's talk about the next thing. Very different between residential and commercial. Residential, when we represent a buyer, and we're presenting an offer, we're always submitting, or we should always be submitting, a pre-approval letter in the residential world. The commercial world... We don't have pre-approvals. We don't have pre-approvals. No. No lender is going to spend the time on a loan, on a request that there isn't a purchase and sale agreement negotiated. Otherwise, they'd be doing that all day long. And it's so complicated to get through somebody's personal financial information, they would never get any deals done. And the properties so many times are so complicated or there's so many tenants or there's so many factors. But I wanted, again, our audience to understand, like we've yeah. talked about... Debt service coverage ratio doesn't exist in residential. Pre-approval doesn't exist in, you know, in the commercial world. So I want everyone to be clear about that. And I'll just make a comment is that, you know, people will say to me, well, what do you do? 
How do you know if you should accept a letter of intent or an offer? And this is where it really behooves us as the realtor to make sure that some of the stuff you talked about earlier, you know, to determine if someone has experience to in what they're doing. Is the property they're trying to buy, do they have a plan to management? Are they going to do it themselves? All those kinds of things. And then the other thing that you and I do is there's times that literally, if I aren't sure, like they're not forthcoming with some of the stuff, I'll have you have a conversation with them to be able to know because you're talking to them as the expert on what you're going to need to be able to provide to a lender. If they're not willing to provide it to you, it's then, difficult. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult. I mean, sometimes I'll have con- people ask me to have a conversation with a selling agent. I can't put anything in writing, but I can have a conversation and say, I have seen so-and-so's financials. I am confident. Sometimes we can do that. And if, sure. if we all have good relationships, we can. Yeah, yeah. I want to go next. I want to talk about a lot of our residential agents are going to run across in the commercial space multifamily opportunities, whether it's a six-family, an eight-family, a ten. They're going to run across multifamily. Anything you want to share about financing programs, anything about multifamily space based on today's world, you know, and it is everything we're talking about is based on Today. when this recording's being done because programs will change, rates will change. But anything you want to share about how multifamily financing works or any special programs or anything like that? So at this time, multifamily is the favored property type by most lenders. It doesn't have the same lease up risks as retail and office. And, you know, in general, it's the favored one to get done. There are some terrific programs for loans that are a million to and over where we can get them done with 20% down without tax returns. Wow. And with no personal guarantees. Wow. And they get done pretty quickly. So 45 to 60 days, which is quick in our world. You know, we don't have those steps. So it's basically a stated income. We have to provide bank statements or investment account statements to show a person has the liquidity and the means to buy the property and that they have reserves. But we don't have to go through tax returns. And that's huge. Wow. It's huge. Yeah. And I also, again, just for an audience understanding, it may be obvious for, for everyone, but I just want to state it. Part of the reason why the multifamily is the favored child right now in, in what's going on is because people have to have a place to live and our population is growing. And I mean, it's just the amount of apartment buildings that are being put up across America and you just can't even imagine that they'll have be filled up and you just watch time and time again. So. There's a reason, like you said, the risk, the turnover, many of them turn over in a year and there's other people wanting them. So it's, there's a reason why it's, it is favored and it's a reason why there are some of the programs because... If you get one vacancy, it doesn't have a huge impact. You know, a 10-unit building, one vacancy, you can fill it. 
you, if you purchase well, you can fill it rel relatively quickly. You get a vacancy in an office building of maybe 5,000 square feet, 10,000 square feet. That's a big impact. And we don't know how long it will take to fill it. And it costs money to fix it up for the next tenant. Right. Significant money. That's right. Because when we talk about commercial market and talk about vacancy, and if someone says vacancies are up in a commercial world, we could look at everything other than multifamily and not be up at all, where the multi, I mean, the, everything else is up, but the multi- Multifamily is, 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 is yeah. down. Down. All right, I wanna go to last couple of questions for you. So in your job, do you find that you get a lot of calls from residential realtors with opportunities looking for help? They've got a client trying yes. to do something? All the time. All the time. All the time. That's how we built the business because residential realtor, just what you said, they have the opportunities. They may not know how to help their client find a commercial loan and they call us. Yeah. In my experience, having done this for 40 plus years and the reason why I wrote the course, the name of the podcast, Commercial Real Estate for Residential Realtors, you are helped me throughout the entire course and appear in many of the videos. And the reason we did the High Risers Club is because that residential realtor for so many commercial opportunities, especially the smaller opportunities, are the first contact for that person who wants to go in the commercial space. And then it's natural that they're going to call you because literally they need to call somebody to place the financing. So that's why I asked the question. So the next to last thing, any advice for a residential realtor trying to get involved in the commercial space? Anything you would share? I think it's a huge opportunity. I've always felt that way. But like you said, residential realtors come across this all the time. It is a, a way to diversify income, expand your skill set, serve more people, be the trusted advisor on both sides. It's like low-hanging fruit in my mind. And I agree. And it almost sounded like I was hearing myself speak when you just, the way you just expressed that, because that's how I talk about it. But I also want to say that in the residential world, I talk about how important it is to have a great trusted team that you work with of attorneys, loan officers, building inspectors, a trusted team. Mm. The commercial space is exactly the same thing that you need to have that trusted team to go to for financing, to go to, to be able to get deals done with attorneys. So it's exactly the same, exactly the same. Last question for you. And I asked this question before, so I know your answer, and I don't think the answer has changed at all, but do you believe that residential realtors can be successful transacting commercial real estate? 100%. 100%, great. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it once again. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Commercial Real Estate for Residential Realtors. As a reminder, please subscribe to this podcast to receive new episodes as soon as they are released. For more information on me, my team, and my educational programs, visit my website at www.coachjeffwright.com. Thank you for listening. And here's to your success.